Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director here at House Conspiracy. Today, I'm talking to Shane Segru of the Unqualified Design Studio, which he describes in this interview as a sort of fluid collective of both technical and creative... Pra- Actually, hold up. I'm not going to open by forging that binary because Shane and I spent a fair amount of time in this interview sort of deconstructing whether there is at all a difference, how much the difference is between technical and creative. Um, we speak about that a lot. So I'm going to save the bad framing for now and get straight into it. Um, first, here's some housekeeping. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, give us a rating and a review. really helps us out. Um, and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at House Conspiracy. Visit the website to see how we can support you at houseconspiracy.org. Um, and if you want to support us, you can head to houseconspiracy.org donate or email us at house at houseconspiracy.org. Anyway, on with the show. Shane and I sat down to chat in the house's upstairs communal area where the unqualified design studio have been working throughout the residency. Because they're such a diverse group, the flow of work they've been doing has been hard to track. On some days, there are sketches of frames and circuitry on the table, and on other days, grant application guidelines. Always on the desk is a veritable library of books, titles like Radical Cities, The Right to Green, The Left Review. Unqualified design and Shane himself are not guarded about their politics. They see the kind of art they make, this sort of participatory community and public works and the, the processes that underpin them to be directly defined to what Shane calls in this interview consumer culture. Um, so we talked today about topics sort of ranging from that to education to identity as an artist and as a person, um, development, you know, how, how to professionally develop development of ideas, politics, and, and the design processes, uh, sort of the ones that are collaborative and participatory, and the ones that are emerging, the ones that have emerged over the past 50 years. Um, it's a pretty interesting conversation. It's very long. Um, it's longer than any of the interviews we've done up to this point. It's very tangential, but it's really good. It's a, it's a genuinely interesting discussion with someone who's got a lot of thoughts on a lot of different topics, uh, which I think is why we managed to talk for so long without me looking down at my notes once. Um, so anyway, here's Shane Sugar. You guys are Unqualified Design Studio, and I'm talking to you, Shane, but who is, who is in Unqualified Design Studio, and how did you guys sort of come together? At the moment, there's myself, Carl Richardson, uh, Marisa Giorgio, uh, Jason Beatty, Amy Learmonth, Sterling Blackett, and who have I forgotten? Alia, Alia Mansour. Um, there's others, I guess, who are involved to a greater or lesser extent. The way we view it is that it's a collective practice, so it's somewhat fluid as to who's involved, depending on, a, on what project we're working on. It's a project by project sort of a thing. Um, how we came together, that group of people in particular, plus a few others around the fringes, have worked together on a sort of a variety of projects over the last two and a half years. Um, mostly art installations for festivals and events, um, but also um, participatory arts initiatives like the Wonky Queenslander, makerspaces like Hackerspace, um, festivals actually 
organizing and producing festivals like Modifier. So through all those activities which kind of interweave and overlap, we came to a point where we were putting a lot of our energy, time and energy into this, these things. Um, in many instances felt like we were coming up with good results, but also burning ourselves out, working full time and doing all this stuff on the side. Um, it got to a point where of the core group of seven of us, six were not employed full time because we'd gone so far down the hole. And we thought, well, maybe we should try and monetize some of what we're doing. Not in necessarily in a let's make the big bucks, but in a uh, how can we turn this into a sustainable living without breaking our brains kind of way. So that's kind of how we've ended up where we are. Yeah, sure. And But even though I guess you're sort of bringing it into like a more um, like a f official blanket with like you've kept, I guess, the term unqualified. Right in yeah. there. So so speak on that, I guess. Like you've you've kept that, so you are sort of yeah. sticking to it. Yeah. So I guess where that came from. So we, it was actually Sterling initially suggested. He sort of said, you know, hey, do, like, do you want to try and start a practice? Um, so to give a bit of context, Sterling and Amy have backgrounds in architecture. I also have a background in architecture, but but sort of abandoned ship. Um, we all studied together at University of Queensland. Um. Uh, Carl and Jace have a background in engineering, Marisa and Leah in performing arts, and so you've got this kind of interesting mix of technical and artistic disciplines. Um, and, you know, <laughs> we sat down first in November just to have a brainstorming session and throw ideas onto a page, like what, what kind of practice could we be? What kind of project could we engage with? And as part of that discussion, of course, you have the, you know, what are we going to call the band? Yeah. Sort of chat, you know? Um, and yeah there were lots of ideas floating around we had like make do a sort of you know play on words type names and at some point we were talking about how all of us I guess despite you know 25 years of education and master's degrees and all of this that none of us felt qualified to be calling ourselves you know a, a legitimate design practice um, None of us felt like we had the sufficient pieces of paper or experience or know-how or whatever it was to, to legitimately approach a prospective client and say, yes, we can provide you with this idea, this service, we can do this thing. And so there was that aspect to it. There's also the, the reality that despite all of that education, none of us is a registered professional yeah. because the process of becoming a registered professional is so long and so convoluted and there are so many ho hoops to jump through understandably professions need to protect their their reputations and the services they provide but it, it it can be frustrating you know that after 10 years studying five years working professionally that you still are not entitled to break out by yourself and offer up professional advice that is backed up by some kind of indemnity um, and then when you do you know Amy's going to be registered in the next few months then you're in the happy situation of having to keep professional indemnity insurance for the rest of your life, even after you retire. So that if a building you designed starts to fall apart 70 years later through lack of maintenance, you, the architect, still remain liable for that. So, you know, so I guess we were trying to get into that space of like, what does it mean to be a professional design consultant? 
why is it that these people's ideas are legitimate and these people's ideas are not simply because of some hoop they've jumped through and then the third aspect to it was if something is unqualified you don't have to qualify it you don't have to justify it we don't feel like we should need to justify every action we take we're very keen on the idea of unsolicited architecture unsolicited design uh, just going out there and testing an idea by doing an idea <laughs> documenting the results and presenting those to a prospective client and saying see you want us <laughs> yeah so so that i don't know if that if that sort of yeah, answers yeah, that yeah, question. Yeah. so like lit literally approaching in like a very sort of strong way the, the iterative design process yeah. but in maybe a more grassroots yeah. sort of yeah, just, just not having to justify beforehand why you're doing something, mm -hmm. but just experimenting for the sake of experimenting, you know. Um, I, I mean, that, that kind of sits in contrast to the very real need to try and, to try and like, draw a salary, you know. If, if you're giving somebody a fee proposal, then of course you have to justify what you're doing. But I think the two can go in parallel. You can be doing the bread and butter work that brings a bit of money in, in order to facilitate the more experimental, iterative design processes that really you're gonna try and build your reputation on, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that, does that mean yeah, 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 we can, we can uh, take some meaning from that, right? Um, I actually wanted to go back to something you said like, like five minutes ago, which was um, about how your studio collective is a mix of technical and creative pursuits. Do you, do you actually see those as particularly different? Do you think that the divide is mostly made up? Or if you do think uh, it's a real divide, what sort of differences do you find there? That's a great question. I think, I think the divide is primarily rooted in the, the, the modes of teaching, the, the means by which we enter those, those different fields. Mm -hmm. um, but that at their core, you know, engineering consultancy and um, contemporary dance are equally creative disciplines and equally technical disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, the world, the, the sort of capitalist paradigm within which we exist doesn't necessarily frame them in the same way. It's easier to place a value on engineering consultancy within the context of building infrastructure, economic growth, you know, um, and, and how that's tied to the construction industry and so on and so forth. It's easier to place a real value on the guy who can tell you how to make a bridge stand up than it is to place a real value on the person who's, you know, dancing interpretively to a piece of contemporary Japanese, like, electronic music or whatever, you know. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so, yeah, so, so at, the, at, at their root, you know, the, 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 the best engineering solutions are essentially creative applications um, of, of the laws of physics. Yeah. You know? um, and similarly, the best creative, expre human expressive um, outputs are the product of highly technical training. You know, and so so really they're the same thing in my mind. Yeah, and I, want, I wanted to uh, delve into something you said at the very start, which is um, you said the, the main difference is in sort of how they're taught. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I think I would uh, probably be inclined to agree, but can you expand on that a little bit? Like, yeah. So I guess you know maybe a lot of my thinking on this actually comes from time I spent in architecture school. Um, architecture, I guess, places itself 
somehow on the threshold between those two things and is therefore a very interesting discipline to to think about you know pedagogically or however you how do you say that word pedagogically? yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That was right yeah um I, you know i always had had issues with the way we were taught in architecture school and i let my teachers know that and <laughs> it didn't it didn't do me any favors um but in retrospect you know some of some of the issues i had have have you know i've i've come to see others with the same concerns and others in fact people who work in the field of education as an academic discipline have commented specifically to me about how architect they think the way architecture is taught is very strange so could could you speak on maybe a couple of specifics yeah, there? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um so like i say architecture places itself between science and art and depending who you talk to you know people can't necessarily make up their mind which it is I think, for the most part, architects uh, like to think of themselves as artists, as creative designers, but that the reality of, of their discipline is that its output is not arbitrary in the same way that a painting or a sculpture is. So, you know, the, the traditional fine arts can exist in, a, in an aesthetic, um, in an aesthetic bubble, if you like, mm -hmm. whereby questions of ethics and morali morality and beauty and all of these things can be addressed without impacting necessarily on the functioning of society. They can be questions that are held separate from the real world that people can go and consider in a gallery or in a, in a museum, uh, reflect on and then that bring that back into their lives. Architecture on the other hand, for all of the aesthetic debate around, you know, the classical revival or the morality of the Gothic church versus the Romanesque church or the, you know, the morality of modernism and postmodernism or whatever. Ultimately, all of that aesthetic debate is well and good, but the architect working on a particular brief for a particular building has a responsibility to the, to the end users of that building to produce a functional building mm -hmm. or, or a functional urban space. And so, it can become at best pompous <laughs> for an architect to be all consumed and concerned by their aesthetic goal whilst forgetting about the people that they're designing for. So I guess the difference is architecture really does straddle this divide where there's a design you know, concern but there's a practical and technical outcome at the end of it. What do you think is good architecture? Good architecture is architecture that responds to the needs of its of its users mm -hmm. you know and it's architecture that is designed not just with those needs in mind but incorporating that the needs of those people the input of those people as part of the design process and that's maybe we'll get onto this in a second but that's where we find our obsession with participatory art practice and participatory design practice and how they can inform each other but I guess to, to kind of come full circle and answer the question about the teaching methods in creative arts and engineering. So as an architecture student, you, you experience both of those worlds because you know, some of your lectures are in the humanities, you're doing theory, history and theory of art. Some of your lectures are in, in the schools of engineering, very technical rules of thumb for how you calculate loads and all that sort of stuff. And we had a lecturer, um, who explained it very well. He was a structures guy, he was a civil engineering guy. And he, 
he described the the scientific method and the engineering method, whereby you you're given a base. You, you imagine the path of education is like a pyramid, and at yep. the base you're given the fundamentals, the laws of physics or chemistry or biology or whatever, just how shit works. And then you refine that knowledge and you start to go down a certain path where you refine it, you become more specialized, more specialized, more specialized. And somewhere at the top, you've got post-PhD researchers who are, you know, blue sky in one really, really specific area, but it's built on this solid foundation. With architecture, and to some degree, I think probably the creative arts as well, the studio culture, yeah. that's flipped on its head. You come in on your first day into this studio environment. You've come from school, which is like, you know, rote learning. This is how you do things. You know? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, people listening to this. <laughs> um, and you, you're thrown into the pointy end of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. You're given one idea, and then you expand on that idea, and then you expand on it a bit more, and then another thing is added, and another thing is added, and oh, there's this consideration, and there's this consideration. So you start out with concerns around. Um, expressiveness through say the hand with yep. drawing yep. or aesthetic ideas of design or how people might use a space then you're told to, con- to think about representation of that so through technical drawing or through three dimensional drawing then you're told to consider the psychology of the users then you're told to consider the sociology of the urban spaces that they're inhabiting then you're, then you're given the context and the history behind the design of buildings and then you're t- you know, taught about site analysis and so, so it's, all backwards. This, it's, it's backwards. backwards. All this stuff gets piled on top, and you come out at the end, just like, okay, so there's just there's there's no right answer to design. There is a right answer to an engineering problem. Yes. But there's but no there's right answer, answer to a design, design problem. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's sort of like a like a peaks and valleys thing. Like there might be lots of right answers. Exactly. But there's lots of wrong answers. Right. Too. But that's what makes the that's what makes design so exciting. Mm. You know. Um, so so, know. so <laughs> do you think do you think the the pyramid would be best? flipped and why why do you think it isn't flipped like is it because universities desperately want to entice first years with like yes you can do this and then put the boring stuff in later what, what do you think what do you think a is the motivation and what do you think would be a kind of a better better way to sort of teach these sort of design skills that's a really good question and i'm you know i'm not sure that uh, like if there were any architecture academics listening to this that they would take my opinion with much with much weight but um, is it because you made enemies of them all? <laughs> enemies in, in Dublin, but not in the University of Queensland. No, I got on quite well there. Um, no, I think... I think I don't know the answer. I mean, the, certainly, again, coming back to the way architecture is taught, it, it's built on a tradition that sort of stems out of, out of the Bauhaus tradition mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, I think in the past, you know, pre-20th century... The teaching of architecture was a more formal affair. You you learned the classical modes and you learned, you know, what was acceptable and what was not, and then you you essentially copied what went before with a few minor variations. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. There, there's there, there's no right way to teach design thinking. I do think it's interesting that you look at places that are admired for their design cultures, like Japan, Germany, Scandinavia, mm-hmm. and the way those places, the, the way you enter 
a design profession is through a base technical discipline. So you don't go to architecture school, you do three years architecture and engineering students together and then you choose your path. You know, in Germany, like you go to a technical school and through that you learn design. Um, and at a certain point they introduce all the clay modeling and this and that, you know. I think there is a value to that. In Holland would be the same, you know, like Dutch urban planning is, is arguably the best in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and they approach it from a highly technical point of view before they get creative, if that makes sense. Or they recognize the creativity of technical accomplishment. Right, they understand what you're kind of getting at is, is that there's this synthesis. Right. And it's to do, so, so yeah, it's to do with framing, you reckon? Like yeah. it's to do with how you frame? Yeah, I think approaches. it is because, you know, I guess a lot of, what, a lot of how you learn in university and, and beyond university, it's not just about the content, it's, it's the identity you're taught. To, to own mm -hmm. and so you know and you, you get that in the small rivalries between faculties you know the med students hate the engineering students you know which is it's all a bit of fun but some of that starts to play out in the real world yeah. as well and working as an engineering consultant with an architecture background you know I found myself in an office full of building services engineers electrical lighting you know mechanical or whatever and hearing the 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 attitude you know, towards the architects they were working with, I just found amusing. You know, they would get off the phone. There was always like, bloody architects. You know, always yeah. concerned with stupid things like the color of this and the, this millimeters here. Why can't they just fucking not care about it and put up the lights? You know, and, and, but that goes both ways. And architects, oh, bloody engineers. You know, they just they just don't get why I want to do this thing. You know. Yeah. And that definitely is the is a product of the the identities that are sort of um, imposed upon students as they, as they learn about their discipline, you know? Um, God, there, there, are so, there are so many ways I want to take this discussion. Like, we could, we could talk about education all day. Yeah, um, let's but, <laughs> but yeah, I know, I know, I know. God, yeah. It's like, welcome, welcome to the uh, Here's How We Think Universities Should Work podcast <laughs> with Shane and Jono. Oh, um, no, but... Um, I do want to ask, like, like, talking about, like, sort of that identities that are fostered through education and, like, sort of tying that to design, right, and, like, this movement towards, like, design thinking and, like, mm -hmm. um, collaborative and consultative design, which, you know, like, I, I was working on an academic project over the summer and it was all about that sort of stuff and half the projects that people were doing are about that. It seems to be... It's a trend, yeah. It seems to be the trend. Um, mm -hmm. I think it can be done right and it can be done very wrong. Yeah. Um... But what I wanted to ask is sort of in terms of that um, and the identity thing you were saying, the identities that people are taught, do you think that um, universities are potentially in the way that they segregate out schools, less so than maybe University of Melbourne where everyone does like a liberal arts or a thing degree? Do you think that the segregation of identities based on your trade or your discipline, yeah. discipline is problematic and in feeding into like divides in society and is that equally then what feeds into your passion for participatory design there's like five questions there yeah there's, there's a lot of questions there but um i think i can try and address them bit by bit um i yeah i i do think there's you you're right to say that it's problematic that that division not necessarily of faculties i mean there's a practical element to that you know yeah of course yeah um but the idea that, you know, 
say, a geology student wouldn't be encouraged to just go and take an ethics class in the, in the philosophy school, and that on the basis of that, they might reconsider that job offer from the coal mine. Like, I, I do think there's a lot to be said for that cross-disciplinary. I mean, that is the definition of a university. That's yes. why they exist, mm-hmm. is to have academic, like high-level thought happening all in one place so that there can be an exchange of knowledge and an exchange of ideas. Yeah, it's the etymology of it. Is yeah, that. exactly. Because if, that, you know, if that's not what it's for, I don't know what it's for. Like, people can just study in different, at home, it doesn't matter. Um, and you know that plays out in the idea of a studio as well. One thing that you do you do start to recognize as you go through a studio course is that yeah you're 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 being guided or or taught to a certain extent by your teacher, but you actually learn the most from your fellow students yep. in a studio environment. Yeah, hundred percent agree. You know, particularly with technical skills. Oh, how'd you do that thing? Oh, that's cool. Oh, oh, you know, exchanging those ideas and getting feedback from your peers that doesn't make you feel like you know oh okay I have to do this thing now because my teacher's told me to. Yeah, and, and I, I want to sort of, you've mentioned that with technical, but I sort of want to say as someone who's done a creative degree, it's exactly the same. Yeah. You learn the most from, from, yeah, your, fellow from your fellow students, and yeah. you know, you do have, again, that studio environment, right, yeah. where you're going, oh shit, I, I can do it that way, yeah. or oh, you're doing it that way, you know, how, to, you know, for instance, in writing, how did you make that yeah. feeling happen? Yeah. How, how, what are how the did mechanics? you approach yeah, the mechanics? Yeah, yeah because I think, I think you're right, I think that a like reframing technical skills to be wholly or not wholly but equally creative and vice versa I think we would have better practitioners Um, and is that is that part of the philosophy of your team and is that part of the philosophy of how you do participatory yeah I think so 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 just a a segue that I was going to make into that um, you know you taking that sort of example of the geologist who does the ethics class um, my experience of the construction industry so I've we've, I mean we've got fairly broad experience in the group but I worked in Shanghai as a property developer a commercial property developer for a period and found it utterly depressing um, I then worked in, in London at a, an engineering consultancy um, and again in Brisbane at an engineering consultancy specialising in acoustics so vibration assessment, noise assessment, environmental noise that sort of thing sounds terribly dull I know um, I got into acoustics out of an interest in music and architecture you know I played a lot of music but a lot of architecture um, and of course you think you're going to be designing studios and concert halls and all that sort of interesting stuff the bread and butter really is more about you know, residential noise and commercial offices and mm-hmm. air conditioning, all that sort of stuff. Um, but my experience of five or six years in the construction industry, well, one of the conclusions I, came, I sort of drew was that one of the results of this division of identities um, is that nobody anymore, not even the architect, is tasked with standing back. Um, is task is nobody's given the responsibility for the overall vision of a project, mm-hmm. right? and so you have a site, you have a private owner in the form of a developer, you have a local government with this with a checkbox exercise which the developer has learned to play <laughs> just to play more. that game, yeah, yeah, or or to to pay that game, um, <laughs> and then you have a team of specialist consultants, be they. You know, quantity surveyors, the contractors, builders, 
um, architects, other design consultants, engineering consultants. Nobody on that team is either contractually obliged or encouraged to stand back and say, is this the best building we could be building? Mm. Or do we even need to build a building? Because that is a directly anti-growth, anti-capitalist action to say, what if we just didn't make profit from this site, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think because none of those, dis because the, those disciplines are divided into the little holes, you know, where the engineer goes off and he just does his sums and he gets his paycheck at the end of the day and that's sweet, the architect goes off and makes pretty pictures of it and he gets his paycheck at the end of the day. Because of that, we are in this kind of curious place where, first of all, the development of our cities is determined by private interests, mm -hmm. but secondly, those private interests don't even know what their vision is. Yeah, no one's asking. Wait, do we do we need? Does this community need eighty percent site coverage? For right, instance? exactly. I mean, given the site we're on, I feel like this conversation is is very relevant. Is you know where you've got a local community for for good reasons or bad reasons that you know that's not necessarily relevant, but a local community who's very much opposed to what is being what is being proposed on the site, but also no real design evaluation, no real, um, I guess, judgment as to the value of the, of the, like, there's an assumption, an underlying assumption within the, um, the property speculation model that building is good, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I come from an Ireland where I graduated, like, at the, the bottom of a crash, I was in architecture school up to 2010, crash obviously happened at the end of 2008. So that's why I'm in Australia. There was no work for architecture graduates. Um, and what, what was happening to my city was that there were these buildings going up like that, like just so fast all over the place. Some of them not even meeting basic fire code, being signed off by architects not meeting basic fire code because there was this pressure just to build, 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 build before the crash came. Yeah. And the result was that you had abandoned apartment buildings, abandoned housing estates, just mid-construction, the, the, the workers just walked off site and went home to Poland and Lithuania and the places they had come from. Um, they walked off because there was no money? The money dried up. Yeah, the yeah. money dried up. So, yeah. they, so they didn't so much walk off as they had no stake in being there? Like, was, yeah. it a, was it a protest or was it just no, there's the, no work? The, the job was over. There yeah. was no, they weren't being paid and they said, all right, we're going home. Yeah, fair call. Yeah. Um, and you know, of course, then the Irish government took on the debt of the largest investment banks and the largest developers. They actually, they actually purchased the assets of the bust developers and then sold them off at bar bargain basement prices, like utter mismanagement. The end result is that the Irish, like population, the Irish taxpayer, has about 40 years worth of debt to pay off on behalf of its government and its investment banks. So it's, you know, it's pr pretty shocking stuff, but all of it came out of that lack of, of broader oversight of do we need to be building these buildings? You know, this assumption that cranes on the horizon is somehow a good thing. And that's been an obsession of mine for five or six years, is like not trying to understand design necessarily, but trying to understand the the deeper process by which we're making decisions about our cities, you know, and the, like, I guess the, where that economic necessity for construction comes from. So all of that sounds like I'm all, way off on a tangent, no, but no, no, no. I, th I do think it ties very, 
in a very real way into the idea of participatory design process is processes is having people in an area say do we need this right and like letting them answer the question because they're already here or absolutely well <laughs> or no no that's, that's problematic right they're already here you know we can get into what that means in Australia but ah uh, yeah I mean yeah, there's a, there, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 but um, there's different layers of already here-ness in this nation absolutely yes. <laughs> but no but there is there like there is a certain amount to be said for um, the the, the, the knowledge of the local and the value of that. Um, I'm by no means suggesting that we get you know that we eradicate the idea of the expert opinion. You know, I'm. I'm Could you expand I'm, a bit on that? I'm interested, like in someone yeah. who's into participatory. How do you feel about the divide between experts and community? I'm interested. It's it's a it's a it's a crucial point. You know, like to understand the value of both. For the expert not to feel like the they are somehow above and beyond the opinion of the regular Joe, and for the regular Joe not to feel like the expert is just operating in some sphere outside of their knowledge, which is what you see in places like West Village. P people feel powerless because this the, the the construction industry this this kind of ghostly amorphous intangible thing is just plowing on without their input. Um, there is, you know, this kind of uh, superficial community consultation process in Brisbane, in cities all over the world, that has developed out of uh, an earlier push towards participatory design practice in the 1960s and 70s. Really came out of Europe, you know, Northern Europe in particular, and this tradition of participatory design, and it has become entrenched in urban policy. And, and municipal policy um, as the community consultation process. Um, in many instances, what that amounts to though is developer design team, they go away, they draw up a design up to a detailed phase, almost up to a tender phase where they can start talking to builders. Then right at that last hurdle, they put it out for public comment for a brief period, three weeks, six weeks, whatever. People can come and go, okay, well, this is what's being proposed. I like it or I don't like it, or can you make this tweak or that tweak? And then the box is checked. Um, community has been consulted. Feedback, yeah. feedback has been incorporated. But that's feedback on a design that has been drawn up already. It's feedback on uh, a vision that really only belongs to a select group. A, a truly participatory design process is where the expert who may or may not have very strong aesthetic opinions, whatever, like that, that's almost irrelevant. But the expert uses their expertise to get the best information and the best input and feedback from the end users or the local population mm -hmm. or whatever relevant stakeholders there are. And for, on any given brief, there's gonna be a range of stakeholders. Um, so it's, it's like that idea that, um, I think Jonathan Shree spoke about pretty early on in his, uh, this sort of term, uh, the idea that limiting the limiting what is acceptable discourse, mm -hmm. like by showing people the plan yep. and saying comment on this, you're not letting people say, yep. you know, there, there's I don't know how many square meters, there's thousands of square meters over there. What yep. should we do with it? Yep. Is a different question to here's what we're going to do with this. Yep. What do you think we should change? Yeah, I mean the classic is what happened with Jack, Jackie tried calling West Village in 
and and then announcing that she had had a win where she had got them to agree to a larger, uh, smaller footprint in exchange for higher towers, when in fact the, the initially proposed footprint of 95% site coverage was already a way above the stipulated permissible footprint within the local area. Plan. What is the permissible footprint? 80%. 80%. So Which she is what it's at now. talked them down to 80%. I'm doing inverted commas here for the microphone. <laughs> Talk them down to eighty percent in exchange for going up to twenty-two stories, mm -hmm. which is, that's not a win. You know, that's now they're actually abiding by the rules, and they've somehow gone up seven stories from where they were. You know, that that that's a classic example of that kind of uh, in in behavioral economics terms or psychological terms, it's called anchoring. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, good, Dan, Daniel Kahneman guy, thinking fast and slow. Um, it's a fascinating idea, but. Um, we so anchoring is this is this process whereby subconsciously or consciously you fix a person or we fix ourselves on a an anchor point or a figure say and whatever judgment we make about the question being asked is then determined by that anchor or is affected by that anchor so you know an easy example is something like I say to you was Mahatma Gandhi uh, older or younger than 140 when he died and you obviously know that he was younger than that but then the next question is how old was Mahatma Gandhi when he died and because you've been anchored at this this very you've got this image of this incredibly old man 140 years old you're going to say I don't know 95 whereas if I said was Mahatma Gandhi older or younger than 50 when he died then your guess will be far closer to 50 than it will be to 140 and gotcha. that sounds really basic and simple but it happens to us all the time so it's the, it's the idea of than anchoring to 95 so 80 seems good exactly yeah or anchoring to an apartment block when actually you need a library yeah you know or anchoring to yeah, a skyscraper when six stories will do sure you know it, but it, it it changes people's expectations without them even realizing and that's what a lot of the graphics on the on the hoarding is about you know it kind of prepares people psychologically for what's gonna happen <laughs> you know um and it and it means that politicians can declare wins. It, another classic example is is the Australian, you know, Australian government or at least WA in Queensland talking about how Australian coal is cleaner than Chinese or Mongolian or Indian coal. I still don't understand what that means, to be honest. It's something to do with the chemistry of the rocks. I don't know. Ask a geologist. But there's you know there's also safer work practices here and better pay, treatment for miners and all that. And they point to that as being a benefit of mining. Right. Is that oh well if we don't do it India or China are going to dig it up over there and isn't it better that we dig it up gotcha. which of course is a kind of a perverse way to and, and to it's the idea it, that know. we've been anchored to the idea that mining is like the constant in our options exactly so we, we, have, we have a set of options but they all have to include mining exactly yeah okay exactly. okay yeah okay that's who, who did you say the theorist was behind that just da Dan Daniel Kahneman Daniel Kahneman he's a Harvard behavioral economist e economist behavioral yeah. economist yeah yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, let's loop in finally to your practice. Just we've been sort of, we've been sort of, we've had like ten attempted segues, but it's been good. Um, so, yeah, you guys, you guys, obviously, you're big on participation. You're big on stuff happening publicly. I know there's going to be a downstairs. There's going to be a BFU talk on public. Yeah, public art. Is taking part in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really excited for that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be really good. But uh, I guess like stepping ahead of that conversation, what do you see as the value of 
public art um, and what do you what do you see how do you see that I guess this is probably a more interesting question because that one has a an answer um, this one maybe doesn't so much how does participation inform public art how are they related are they inherently related if a participatory artwork was in a gallery is it in is it a way public art public art yeah you know because the public had a yeah yeah, yeah uh, like look participatory art is not like we didn't invent it it's not a new thing um, in term in, in a in a art acad academia sense it's you know there's, there's been a definite turn towards participation participatory art practices just kind of since the early 90s like mm -hmm. it's and it's fairly well established at this point and there's a lot of academic writing around it um, and there have of course been participatory projects presented in galleries you know um, Goma 10 is pretty much yeah right just get in there and do stuff you know because yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's how you get people through the doors which maybe is a testament in and of itself too yeah yeah, you keep you keep talking. Um, but you know, as, as to the value of participatory art presented in a gallery, I don't know. There's different. Um, I guess there's different. There's at least three different kinds of participation in a way, mm -hmm. um, and all of them have their own sort of aesthetic uh, concerns or considerations. There's the kind of participation whereby you're asking a select group of people beforehand to produce something through a workshop or a class or whatever and then presenting that as a finished work. Yep. So that's one kind of participatory work. Another is where the participation itself is the art. And so simply by being involved, you know, um, I can't remember the name of the dude. Uh, it doesn't matter, but he, he, cooks, he cooks nasi goreng in an art gallery and people are invited just to come and share a meal. Yeah, I know, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and it's a really simple idea, but for him, the medium is the interactions he's producing mm -hmm. and the, hu the human interaction therein. Um, if, if that meal was just cooked beforehand by participants and then people could, could just come and get it as a takeaway, would it be the same thing? I don't know. Would you classify it differently? And then the third kind I would think about would be the more, I guess, ac actively challenging or abrasive uh, often overtly political art which is it, it does not necessarily um, ask for the consent of its participants mm -hmm. you are brought into the act of participating simply by being there um, there's that um, oh, again I can't remember the name the uh, the mounted police in the Tate Modern um, what is it Tanya Tanya something or other anyway you go to the Tate Modern in London expecting some kind of art experience, of course, but then you, you know, you're basically shuffled around the space by mounted police, like you're, like you're, yeah, at a riot, you know, um, that sort of um, forced participation. So there's this kind of, you know, is it still? I'm, I'm interested. Sorry to interrupt. Is it still forced participation if it's in a gallery? If it's in a gallery, space, or is there a level of consent there because you're in a gallery, and is your state of mind different? And does that speak to maybe your problems with gallery spaces? Mm. And then, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it definitely frames it differently. Like if the mounted police start pushing you around in the street, you're like, oh God, I'm some kind of criminal, of course. Um, but I guess it's just a, it's, it's an example of how you might not be fully aware of what kind of piece mm -hmm. you're going to see. Um, and then suddenly be in this situation where you can't get out of it. You, know? you, you can't just walk off when a policeman on a horse is telling you to go somewhere kind of hard. Anyway, 
Um, in terms of what we see as the value of participation, um, I guess a lot of it comes down to you know this idea of like the end of art, the death of art, the end of history. <laughs> um, we're at a point, and actually, this kind of ties into something you were trying to get at with the the launch party and with the curation of this as a place and as a space. Um, you can't walk down a street in any city in the world anymore without having an aesthetic experience, quote unquote, because the visual in particular, but also the arrow. Um, the tactile, you know, the olfactory. <laughs> They've been commandeered by consumer capitalism mm. as means to an end. So, you know, advertising, uh, as you say, like even just street art has been like kind of appropriated as a means to sell stuff. Um, and the result is this noisy, visu visually noisy environment. Um, and in that context, it becomes impossible almost to differentiate between art and advertising, or yeah. or aesthetics and aesthetics. So you know? how how do you how do you see how do you see like I guess like moving away from sort of the theoretical? How do you see ways to effectively transition and to mark maybe a new divide between those two? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> because I'm not a visual artist, I, I try not to concern myself with it. But okay. I, I do, uh, I guess basically I skirt around the issue by, by saying that the, one of the only ways or one of the easy ways I can see to, to combat it or to get around it or to create that divide is to understand that participating in the act of making art is now the only way to do, to define art as different from you know commerce mm. right so engaging people engaging a population or a group of people in getting their hands dirty in that iterative design process in understanding the the processes by which things are made that that is directly opposed to just being able to go into the shop and buy an aesthetic experience. Yeah. You know? um, you're not being asked to, to exchange some kind of monetary value for the experience. The medium that the artist, that an artist is, is working with, is not paper or canvas or paints or computer graphics. The medium is participation. The medium is human interaction. The medium is... Um, the unexpected, you know, and on that basis, you can start to evaluate these projects aesthetically if you understand those things as being the medium, um, because they still have to be evaluated aesthetically. There is still good quality and poor quality participatory yeah. art. It's yeah. not. It's not all uni uniformly of good quality. No, but, no, no, absolutely, you know? absolutely. And I don't. Th I don't think we can get mixed up. Because a lot of participatory art also has a social, uh, a social um, aim or some social outcome, um, but it's you know and and as a result starts to be evaluated as inherently good or quality because it has a social sort of um, 
agenda. Um, Do you think that as it maybe becomes more normalized within the discourse around art and what participation is, rather as participation becomes more normalized, do you think people will be able to assess it better? Um, because I think people are sort of in a sort of place where maybe, like all art is inherently political, like mm -hmm. you can't argue that, but because participatory art has inherently, as you sort of outlined without sort of directly saying it, has this very specific um, and very direct um, politics about it. Mm. Do you think there's, um, yeah, do you think there's, do you think um, that people are going to have to get over that initial politics in order to assess it? Do you think that's important? Or is it about how effectively you're engaging that politics? <clears throat> I think they can happen in parallel. Like, there's a, there's a, an ethical evaluation on the basis of social outcomes mm -hmm. if, if a piece of participatory art has, has a social agenda, you know, like a, a community workshop where you're, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to upskill uh, a, a, a group of uh, urban youths or something, you know, like sure. there's, there's a definite social agenda there and it can be evaluated on the basis of its social outcomes, the success of the project in, in those terms. And at the same time, it can be evaluated aesthetically, not in terms of the end product, but in terms of the quality of the interactions that you've produced. Mm -hmm. um, quality, of course, is a difficult word to define, but you know, let's, let's assume we all know what we're talking about. Yeah, there's like elements of subjectivity and objectivity. And exactly, exactly. And so, actually, that's, the key, that's, that's probably a key to it, is that there's, there's a subjective assessment to be made um, around the quality of the interactions. Um, or the, the quality of the, um, the teaching, or the quality, whatever. And then there's an objective assessment to be made around the tangible outcomes as assessed, as you, as you might assess any, any other kind of social enterprise. Um, there's also probably a, an important distinction to be made between participatory art and participatory design. Mm -hmm. I want you to just pause and hold that thought. I just need to grab a charger for my computer. Sweet. Um, so I'll be back in two seconds. No worries. Alright, so, getting back into it. Um, the difference between participatory art and participatory <coughs> design, is it to do with when it happens? Is it to do with the purpose of the outcome? I think maybe, yeah, probably the latter. I think it comes back towards um, what we were saying about the... Uh, right at the start, we are talking about how architecture sits on this divide between, say, art and science, where a lot of the fine arts can exist in that aesthetic bubble where they can inquire into things without fear that they're going to have a direct physical impact on the world around them. People can go and consider those questions and take them back. Whereas with architecture, you can't just consider the question because there's a tangible outcome. Participatory art 
falls into this category with the aesthetic questions that don't necessarily have to have a tangible outcome in the real world, or they can be just a catalyst for in inviting dialogue and asking questions. Whereas participatory design, there is a tangible outcome at the end of the process, whether that outcome is a documented design or a physically constructed design. And so the ethical evaluation, so where I was talking about this, this difference between an ethical evaluation and aesthetic evaluation of participatory art, in participatory design, I think maybe they're one and the same because the ethical evaluation is, or at least it takes preeminence because there is the tangible outcome is the most important part. The way it looks is superseded by the way it works, mm -hmm. you know, function over form and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so the approaches to both maybe are slightly different because with participatory art, you don't need to be concerned with the product. You can, you can squarely focus on the process. Whereas participatory design, you're squarely focused on the process, but you also want it to produce a quality product. Yeah. Do you know? And so, there's, so it's, it's maybe a subtle difference, but an important one. What's interesting is that the methods for both can inform one another. Hmm. You know? Again, like in education, it's about framing. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, I don't know, do you have any idea what we do <laughs> after all of that? <laughs> after, all, after, after uh, yeah, um, think uh, you design, but you're not qualified. <laughs> that's, that's, what I've, that's what I've taken away from this. As, as, much as, as much as I'd like to ask like specific questions about your project, I think this has almost been a more interesting conversation, not talking about specifics. I don't know if there's anything yep. you want to talk about it or like what you've got upcoming, anything sort of specific you've done that maybe would serve as a good addendum yeah. to everything we've talked about so far. Yeah, I mean, so I guess, why don't I, I'll say a few things to, to summarize straight out of my notebook. Um, so a lot of what we're concerned with is this idea, or we, we take as a starting point the idea of serious play. Mm -hmm. um, we like the idea of the absurd, um, but things that are absurd can have very serious critiques you know, hidden within them. Uh, we like the idea of taking that kind of absurdity, um, that sort of playful critique, out of its typical... Um, typical context or setting which is often galleries or other art spaces or festivals and taking it into the city, taking it into the public realm for people to consider and engage with. Um, the reason we like serious play is because it, you know, in a very non-confrontational way it invites dialogue, it can be an excuse to build community, get people together and do a thing. Um, it encourages autonomy from the consumer society within which we live. It's, there's, no, there's no good reason monetarily to have a parade except mm. just because it's fun, you know. But within that, there can be questions asked. Um, so it's the aesthetic consideration. Yeah. Around. It also encourages resourcefulness, self-reliance in the form of basic skills, you know, learning how to build things, learning how to organize people, learning how to communicate, you know. Um, and it can challenge our preconceptions around public and private space which we kind of touched on with talks yeah. about West Village and so on and so forth so that's 
you know, that, that's one of our, our major starting points for the work we do. And that idea comes out of the, the traditions within which we work. So stuff like the Wonky Queenslander and Modifier Festival are fairly deeply rooted within Burning Man as a sort of a background culture. Um, and, the, you know, there's, there's a series of principles articulated for Burning Man that some people take very literally and others not so much, but they're an interesting talking point. Um, and I think basically what we're trying to do as a practice is successfully make that migration from a bit of fun to a bit of fun that can like make a real impact on the way the way people exist in our cities you know I'm not saying we're going to save the world but if we can change one one person's attitude in Brisbane City Council as to the value of of a, a public art gathering or happening or as to the value of um, a library over an apartment block that for me would be a success you know sweet so. and um, one final question is uh, do you like how cranes look how what do you like how cranes look <laughs> uh, <laughs> going back to something I wanted to ask this like halfway through that's a really good question actually so we just put in an application for an art piece at Burning Man this year uh, we were invited to submit uh, full applications, that was nice. Um, the concept is called Big Band, and it's three gigantic instruments made out of industrial materials. Uh, the idea being a technical demonstration of acoustic principles on an absurdly large scale that people can play with. Mm -hmm. So combining a lot of what we've just spoken about, yeah. playful things, scientific things, artistic things. So one of them is a stringed instrument, one of them is a percussion instrument and one is a wind instrument. The stringed instrument is the neck, the, the horizontal bit of a crane dug into the ground sticking up about 10 meters in the air with uh, a steel cable in high tension tied to it and a gigantic bow made out of a steel truss that people can run across the string in order to set it into, into vibration. And fuck yeah, I like the idea of a big fucking crane sticking out of the desert that people can play with. So, so you like the idea of cranes <laughs> after you fucked with them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we like machines, definitely. Machines are really fucking cool, you know? Sweet. So. Oh, thanks for the chat, dude. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for listening to the House Conspiracy podcast recorded at House Conspiracy. If you have feedback or you want to say hi or if there's something you'd like to see us do, you can email us at house at houseconspiracy.org and you can email me directly about ideas for future podcasts at jonathan at houseconspiracy.org. You can also support us by becoming a member or by donating to us at houseconspiracy.org slash donate. See you next time.